For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. This extraordinary person, and you know, arranged hiding together under a bushel. But um, she's a filmmaker, an exceptional novelist, uh, Zen priest, fellow Zen priest, professor at Smith College. Um, she spoke at our congregation, uh, she dragged Zen Gate before, also with women and children first about her one of her previous books. A Tale for the Time Being, which is highly recommend, the wonderful, wonderful novel that is one of the most illuminating books about Japan that uh, I know of. But this today she's going to be talking about her newest book, The Book of Form and Emptiness. So also with Zen and Buddhist connotations, but it's a, it's a novel. It's a, it's a good story. It's, a, it's um, interesting characters. And there's a couple of things I wanted to point out about it that Ruth might respond to in her talk. One is that the main character, Betty, young boy, hears objects speaking, hears voices, and that's not something that's conventional in our society, but it's part of Zen lore. So uh, one of Zen's slogans is that non-sentient beings expound the teaching, expound the truth. And so there are all these these voices that Benny hears, and he kind of, well, I won't say what happened to him. <laughs> no spoilers, but um, it's really interesting. And, you know, in Zen, it's not just man-made objects like teapots and cups and, uh, and shoes that speak, but also the mountains and the rivers and the forests. So there's a, there's a deep connection with uh, East Asia and Zen Buddhist lore. Uh, so that's one, one thing about this book that's really intriguing to me. This, this connection with so those of the non-session speaking. The other one I wanted to mention is that the book itself is a character in the book. It's one of the most amazing, the way you pull that off, uh, just how the, how the book, the, the character of the book is. Uh, anyway, it's really uh, skillful and it's really interesting, and so I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about it. Yeah. So welcome, Lupazeki. Thank you so much, Taigan. That was um, that was really beautiful and kind of um, embarrassing too. But <laughs> that's okay. I'll get over it. <laughs> Can everybody hear me? Um, it's going to take a moment here to fiddle. So um, please bear with me. There we go. How's that? Um, so thank you all for risking your lives to come out and uh, meet in person. It's really wonderful, and um, and I have to say that I've really missed I've really missed in person um, events, and I'm sure that that you all have too, right? We've all we've all been sort of starved for this kind of face to face meeting, and um, you know, and and it's it's funny too because um, certain things have dropped away, uh, as we know, right during during the pandemic. Um, and one of the things that's dropped away uh, for, for writers is this kind of in-person um, event, right? Um, when the paper, when the hardcover of uh, Tell for the Time Being was published, um, I did all of my events online. And, and that was, you know, great, right? I, I just never had to change out of my pajama bottoms. Um, but at the same time, you know, there, you know I really missed, I missed the in-person um, you know, these in-person events. Uh, I miss the connection. And, um, and one of the things that uh, I really missed was um, the opportunity to do readings, okay? Um, on the, you know, in the, when, when everybody shifted over to online platforms, I think the booksellers and the publishers decided that on an online remote platform, um, uh, readings wouldn't really work. Uh, and so what they did instead was they had us 
in conversation with another writer, which was great. I mean, that was that was a wonderful that was a wonderful innovation. But uh, you know, one of the great pleasures for me as a writer is to read out loud. Right? Um, there's something about you know you can talk about a book, right? But that's different from the direct experience of a book, and. And that's, that's what I really ended up missing. So what I'd like to do today is, it, I hope this is okay, I hope you guys like being read to, um, because I would really like to do um, some, you know, do a reading from the book um, to give you a sense of, is that the, yeah. is that a hug? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to give you a sense of what the voice of the book sounds like. How's that? Better, right? Okay. Now let's see. Let's, you know, we're going to be chasing the feedback all around the stage. How's that? Oh, that's good. Okay, good. Um, so, yeah, anyway, what I'd like to do is to do, um, to do a bit of a reading today. Um, so that, and especially because, you know, as, as Tygen mentioned, um, this book is about voices, Right. And the book is a character. The book is actually the narrator of the book kind of narrating itself into being. And at the same time, narrating Benny, the protagonist, into being, too, although it's a little bit unclear. It, it's, um, you know, it, it's a kind of paradox. It's kind of like a paradoxical koan or something. Um, or like the chicken or the egg, you know, which comes first, the boy or the book? And and so, you know, is the book narrating the boy into being, or is the boy narrating, you know, narrating the book? So it's a little bit, um, you know, it's a little bit ambiguous there, and and intentionally so. But this idea that um, that worlds can emerge through dialogue is something that um, is very relevant to me both as a Zen practitioner but also as a writer because that's uh, you know in my in my experience you know I, I write a novel and so we think of it as you know a novel a thing right a speaking thing um, but we think of it as a singular thing it's the book of form and emptiness right but it, but it's never that um, the book goes out into the world, and it's, you know, I hope anyway, read by readers. And it's through that, you know, that collaboration between me and you that the book emerges, right? And so as a result, you know, it isn't just a singular book of form and the book of form and emptiness. There are as many books of form and emptiness as there are readers of the book. And that to me is what is so magical about um, about writing, you know, is that the you know the the it's a it's a completely collaborative process. Um, and it's also a kind of multiverse, right? It's it's never just a singular thing. It's it's a many worlds situation. Um, so anyway, uh, that's what I'd like to do tonight. And then um, when I'm, you know, when I'm finished with the reading part of it, I would love to open it up to more of a, once again, a conversation with you so that we can, you know, we can kind of raise the world of the book together, right? Um, and and have, have more of a dialogue. So that's my plan. Um, and I hope that works. Okay. In the beginning, a book must start somewhere. One brave letter must volunteer to go first, laying itself on the line in an act of faith from which a word takes heart and follows, drawing a sentence into its wake. From there, a paragraph amasses, and soon a page, and the book is on its way, finding a voice, calling itself into being. A book must start somewhere, and this one starts here.
a boy. Listen, that's my book, and it's talking to you. Can you hear it? It's okay if you can't, though. It's not your fault. Things speak all the time, but if your ears aren't attuned, you have to learn to listen. You can start by using your eyes, because eyes are easy. Look at all the things around you. What do you see? A book, obviously. And obviously, the book is speaking to you. So try something more challenging. The chair you're sitting on? The pencil in your pocket? The sneaker on your foot? Still can't hear? Then get down on your knees and put your head to the seat. Or take off your shoe and hold it to your ear. No, wait. If there are people around, they'll think you're mad. So try it with the pencil first. Pencils have stories inside them. And they're safe as long as you don't stick the point in your ear. Just hold it next to your head and listen. Can you hear the wood whisper? The ghost of the pine? The mutter of lead? Sometimes it's more than one voice. Sometimes it's a whole chorus of voices rising from a single thing, especially if it's a made thing with lots of different makers. But don't be scared. I think it depends on the kind of day they were having back in Guangdong or Laos or wherever. And if it was a good day at the old sweatshop, if they were enjoying a pleasant thought at the moment when that particular grommet came tumbling down the line and passed through their fingers, then that pleasant thought will cling to the whole. Sometimes it's not so much a thought as a feeling, a nice warm feeling, like love, for example, sunny and yellow. But when it's a sad feeling or an angry one that gets laced into your shoe, then you better watch out because that shoe might do crazy shit, like marching your feet right up to the front of a Nike store, for example, where you could wind up smashing the display window with a baseball bat made of furious wood. If that happens, it's still not your fault. Just apologize to the window and say I'm sorry to the glass, and whatever you do, don't try to explain. The arresting officer doesn't care about the crappy conditions in the bat factory. He won't care about the chainsaws or the sturdy ash tree that the book used to be. So just keep your mouth shut. Stay calm. Be polite. Remember to breathe. It's really important not to get upset because then the voices will get the upper hand and take over your mind. Things are needy. They take up space. They want attention, and they'll drive you mad if you let them. So just remember, you're like the air traffic controller. No, wait, you're like the leader of a big brass band made up of all the jazzy stuff of the planet, and you're floating out there in space, standing on this great garbage heap of a world with your hair slicked back and your natty suit and your stick up in the air, surrounded by all the eager things. And for one quick, beautiful moment, all their voices go silent, waiting till you bring your baton down. Music or madness, it's totally up to you. The book. So start with the voices then. When did he first hear them? When he was still little? Benny was always a small boy and slow to develop, as though his cells were reluctant to multiply and take up space in the world. It seems he pretty much stopped growing when he turned 12, the same year his father died and his mother started putting on weight. The change was subtle, but Benny seemed to shrink as Annabelle grew, as if she were metabolizing her small son's grief along with her own. Yes, that seems right. So perhaps the voices started around then too, shortly after Kenny died? It was a car accident that killed him. No, it was a truck. Kenny O was a jazz clarinetist, but his real name was Kenji, so we'll call him that. He played swing mostly, big band stuff, at weddings and bar mitzvahs, and in campy downtown hipster clubs, where the dudes all wore beards and pork pie hats and checkered shirts and mothy tweed jackets from the Salvation Army. He'd been playing a gig, and afterwards he went out drinking or drugging or whatever he did with his musician friends. Just a little toot, but enough so that on his way home, when he stumbled and fell in the alley, he didn't see the necessity of getting up right away. He wasn't far from home. 
only a few yards from the rickety gate that led to the back of his house. If he'd managed to crawl a bit further, he would have been okay. But instead, he just lay there on his back in a dim pool of light cast by the street lamp above the gospel mission thrift shop dumpster. The long chill of winter had begun to lift and a spring mist hung in the alleyway. He lay there, gazing up at the light and the tiny particles of moisture that swarmed brightly in the air. He was drunk, or high, or both. The light was beautiful. Earlier in the evening, he'd had a fight with his wife. Maybe he was feeling sorry. Maybe in his mind, he was vowing to be better. Who knows what he was doing? Maybe he fell asleep. Let's hope so. In any case, that's where he was still lying an hour or so later when the delivery truck came rattling down the alleyway. It wasn't the truck driver's fault. The alley was filled with ruts and potholes. It was littered with half-emptied garbage bags, food waste, sodden clumps of clothing and broken appliances, which the dumpster divers had left behind. In the flat gray light of the drizzling dawn, the truck driver couldn't distinguish between the debris and the musician's slim body, which by then was covered with crows. The crows were Kenji's friends. They were just trying to help by keeping him warm and dry, but everyone knows that crows love garbage. Is it any wonder that the driver mistook Kenji for a garbage bag? The driver hated crows. Crows were bad luck, and so he aimed his truck right at them. The truck was carrying crates of live chickens to the Chinese slaughterhouse at the end of the alleyway. He stepped on the gas and felt the body bump beneath the wheels as the crows flew up in front of his windshield, obscuring his view and causing him to lose control and careen into the loading dock of the Eternal Happiness Printing Company Limited. The truck tipped and the crates of chickens went flying. The noise of the squawking birds woke Benny, whose bedroom window overlooked the dumpster. He lay there, listening, and then the back door slammed. A high, thin cry rose from the alley, uncoiling like a rope, like a living tentacle, snaking up into his window and hooking him, drawing him from bed. He went to the window, parted the curtains, and peered down to the street. The sky was just growing white. He could see the truck on its side, wheels spinning, and the air was filled with flapping wings and flying feathers. Although, being cage-raised, these chickens couldn't really fly. They really didn't even look like birds. They were just these white, triple-like things, scrabbling away into the shadows. The thin cry tightened like a wire, wire, drawing Benny's eyes to a spectral figure enveloped in a cloud of diaphanous white, the source of the sound, the source of his world, his mother, Annabelle. She stood there in her nightgown, alone in the pool of light cast by the street lamp. All around her there was motion, feathers drifting like snow, but she stood perfectly still like a frozen princess, Benny thought. She was looking down at something on the ground, and in a flash he knew that something was his father. From where he watched, High up in his window, he couldn't see his father's face, but he recognized his legs, which were bent and kicking, just like they did when Kenji was dancing. Only now, he was lying on his side. His mother took a step forward. No, she cried, and fell to her knees. Her thick golden hair spilled down her shoulders, catching the light from the street lamp and curtaining her husband's head. She leaned over, crooning, as she tried to gather him up. No, Kenji, no, no, please, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Did he hear her? If he had opened his eyes just then, he would have seen his wife's lovely face hanging over him like a pale moon. Maybe he did. He would have seen the crows perched on the rooftops and the swaying power lines, watching. And maybe, looking over his wife's shoulder and beyond, he would have seen his son watching too from his distant window. Let's say he did see, because his dancing legs slowed then, stopped kicking, and grew still. If, in that moment, Annabelle was Kenji's moon, 
than Benny was his distant star. And seeing him there, twinkling brightly in the pale dawn sky, he made an effort to move his arm, to raise his hand, to wiggle his fingers. Like he was waving to me, Benny thought later. Like he was waving goodbye. So I think I'll stop that part for now. It did, didn't I? Just fine. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> um, so I'll just say a few words about, uh, about I'll just say a few words about the process of writing this. Um, you know, so the the as you can tell, the book starts with a death, right? And um, my editor at the time. Uh, read an early draft, and, and she um, she said, you know, that, that's not such a great idea um, <laughs> to start a novel with a death like that, you know, of, of like really one of the, you know, kind of beloved characters in the book, right? Um, she said, that's just probably not going to work. Um, and so she invited me to, um, to rethink that, right? And, and I did. I thought about it a lot. And in many ways, I think she was right, you know, that, that for, um, for most folks, it's probably not a great idea to start, you know, a novel with um, the, the death of a, of a central character. Um, but on the other hand, I, I felt, um, I really felt strongly that, that for this book, um, it was necessary to start that way. Because the book really tells the story of, um, you know, the recovery from that kind of shock and grief, um, you know, that, that, uh, that Benny and his mother kind of undertake, you know, they, they are trying to, they're, they're trying to come to terms with this. They're trying to come to grips with this. Um, and everything that happens in the aftermath, um, you know, Benny's hearing voices, Annabelle, his mother um, starts to, you know, she's dealing with her own grief and, um, and, and she starts, um, you know, doing retail therapy and she ends up, you know, hoarding things. Um, and so their house is, is, you know, a very cacophonous place filled with things that won't shut up. And, and this drives Benny, you know, kind of crazy. And, um, eventually the, the voices, you know, follow them out of the house and, uh, follow him to school where he gets into all sorts of trouble. Um, he's bullied by the other kids who think that he's weird. Um, and he ends up, um, on a pediatric psych ward. Um, and where he meets some interesting people. And then after that, he uh, decides that school is really no longer an option, right? And, um, and so he takes refuge in a large public library where, of course, you know, libraries are, are places that are filled with objects that speak to us, right? But they're, you know, books and libraries know to speak quietly in their library voices, right? And so Benny finds this to be a very soothing place to be and um and it's at the library where he meets you know he meets the community of people who um who really do help him um you know navigate the terrain of his grief um including a uh, a homeless slovenian poet philosopher named slavos um who uh who helps benny come to terms with his with this these voices that he hears um he meets a young performance artist um, named the Aleph or the Aleph, who uh, has a transgender ferret and makes these um, installations through the library's collections, right? Um, and of course, he falls in love with her. And uh, he meets a, a kind of a superhero librarian, right? Which is a little bit of an oxymoron because, of course, all librarians are superheroes. <laughs> and uh, yes, <laughs> yay libraries, yay librarians. And um, and then it's in the it's in the library, in the basement of the library, that he, he finds this very special place. Um, it's a it's an um, an abandoned bindery, right? Where um, objects are, where books are unbound, words are unbound, and it's there that he meets um, and, and first starts to hear the voice of his book. And and so the the whole novel sort of emerges from this dialogue that Benny that I've you know read a little bit of that Benny is having um, with the book, um, and so you know this this 
you know, the, the trajectory that Annabelle and Benny, you know, their, their journey um, from, you know, the beginning of the book to the end of the book is really a story about people who are, who are learning to come to terms with, with grief. And, um, and the title, um, well, a couple of other things. Um, after, after Benny's dad uh, dies, the first thing he hears is not the voice of an object, but he hears his dad's voice, his father's voice, speaking to him. And this is at the crematorium. And, um, and this was, you know, it, it, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, people often ask me, you know, where, where do books, you know, where do, where do ideas come from? And very often, I don't even know the answer to that, right? Um, it's usually, it's never just one thing. It's usually a constellation of things that, you know, that start to accrue. They start to gather and then they constellate into something, you know, into, and kind of generate this energy. And then the book is kind of born from that. Um, but what I realized kind of after I'd written the book was that um, this idea of uh, a father's voice speaking to you after his death was actually something that I had taken from my own experience. Um, and I kind of, not like I'd forgotten about it exactly, but in any case, I gave it to Benny, right? Um, in, in, you know, in, after my dad died, which was back in 1998, quite a while ago, um, for about a year after he died, um, I would occasionally, you know, when I'd be doing something like washing the dishes or folding laundry or something, and I would hear him um, clear his throat behind me and then, and then say my name, Ruth. And every time this happened, I would turn around, you know, to, to look and then, uh, you know, he wouldn't be there. And, and every time there was this kind of moment of, of, you know, of just this kind of punch of grief. Right. Um, and, and then I'd go on folding the laundry or finishing the dishes and, and kind of forget about it. Right. I think there was a kind of dissociation going on there as well, but I just kind of forget about it and until it happened again. And this happened maybe five or six times and I kind of forgot about it. It resurfaced as I was writing the book and I, you know, I'd given it to Benny and was writing the book and suddenly I remembered these instances, you know, and, um, and recalled them quite vividly, but I'd really kind of forgotten those. Right. And so in a way, you know, the process of writing a book, um, writing a novel like this, it, it's, you know, you're sort of dropping down into the deeper, darker layers of one's own, of your own experiences, right? And, and using those experiences, allowing those experiences to um, sort of, it's like a dream state, right? To kind of rise up in your unconscious and, and you write from that place. And then there's a little bit of a lag. There's often a little bit of a lag um, while my conscious mind sort of catches up and, and my you know, sort of memory catches up. And so this happened to me over and over again during the, um, the writing of the book of Form and Emptiness. And then, you know, at the end, I realized, oh, right, of course, writing the book was my way of coming to terms with, you know, the, the grief that I felt after my parents died. Um, and it's my way, of course, right? Because this is what I do. I'm a novelist, right? It's my way of navigating that same terrain. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I think kind of my journey as a novelist is almost paralleling the journey of the characters um, in the book. Um, and so then this leads me to uh, the title, uh, The Book of Form and Emptiness, which I don't need to explain to um, many, most maybe of the people in the audience, because it comes from a very a very central um, Zen teaching um, called the, the Heart Sutra or the Heart of Great Wisdom Sutra, the Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra. And um, the key line in the sutra is, um, or the line that I'm quoting here, is uh, form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself form. And again, it seemed to me that um, so the relationship between form and emptiness is something that the book um, explores. Um, and the way that I like to think about or easy, a kind of uh, nice graphic or a nice visual um, to, to use when talking about form and emptiness is to imagine emptiness as, a, uh, as this vast, vast ocean, right? This vast ocean of emptiness. 
um, so vast that you can't see the shores, the shore, and you can't see anything but the ocean of emptiness. And, um, you know, the planet turns and the winds blow and the tide, you know, the tides shift and, um, and a little wave starts to form and the wave, you know, sort of slowly pops up its head, right? And it's got this little white hat on and it looks around and at, the, at this ocean and, and thinks, you know, wow, look at me. You know, I, I'm like really, I'm really something, right? I am, I am bigger and taller and, you know, than, than anything in the ocean, you know, around me. Um, and, and really has this sense of, of, you know, I'm a wave and I'm really, I, I'm substantial. Um, I have a self, right? And, um, and then, of course, we all know what happens, right? That the planet turns, the tide, you know, the wind recedes. And the little wave starts to drop back into the ocean, and the wave doesn't like this at all, right? The wave's like, no, you know, and um, and then finally it disappears, right? And and so this is the reality that we're all subject to, right? That we're all subject to this this, this relationship between form and emptiness. Um, right now we're all here as form, right? Um, but that's not going to last. Um, but what's nice about this is that um, the ocean, the ocean and wave metaphor. Um, also is a nice way of, of understanding and visualizing um, this core Buddhist teaching of um, interconnectedness, right? Um, that, that, or interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh called it. And that, that the wave can't exist without the ocean and the ocean can't exist without the wave, right? That the two are radically, you know, and inseparably interconnected. And that's also, you know, that, that's the same thing describes our relationship to the planet, um, our relationship to each other, right? That we, that we are all, you know, deeply and radically interconnected. Um, and so these are the, you know, these are the kinds of themes that I was exploring um, in the the book, as well as you know, themes of of mental health and and uh, you know, various other things too. There's also a character in the book who's um, a kind of Marie Kondo type <laughs> character um, who is a Zen Buddhist nun uh, and is has unwittingly written the bestseller and is on book tour. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, the book, I, I'll wrap up here um, just by saying one other thing. Um, and then I, I want to read just one, one other quick section. Um, the, you know, as Tygen mentioned, you know, the book is speaking, right? The book is speaking itself into being. And, um, and this was not actually intentional. Um, when I started writing this book, I, I didn't know that that's what was going to happen. In fact, I had a very different idea. Um, ever since I was, uh, I've always loved novels, right? And I've always read older novels, 19th century novels. Um, and, and I've always had this idea that any novelist worth her salt should be able to write in the third person omniscient voice, right? I wonder where I got that idea from. <laughs> um, and so that's what I set out to do, you know, write, write this, write from that kind of um, authoritative, godlike perspective, right? Um, and and I've tried this before and it's never worked. Um, and I think probably because I'm a you know mixed race person, I, I just don't see anything from a singular point of view. Everything is is you know I, I see everything everything from different subjectivities. And um, but in any case, I, I you know was determined to do this, and um, I started writing in that voice, and everything was going along just fine um, until about fifty pages in, when suddenly Benny Benny popped in. Right. And started speaking. And I think I had just written a section um, where I had described uh, the meeting of Kenji and Annabelle and the first time they made love. And Benny suddenly pops in and says, whoa, too much information. <laughs> right? They don't need to hear about that. I don't want to hear about it. I'm just a kid. You know, move, move on. Right? And, and from there, you know, the, the, and, and then, you know, the narrator who Benny is addressing, responded, right? And then this dialogue started to emerge between the two of them. And that's when I realized, you know, <laughs> duh, right? I I'm writing a book about objects that speak. And of course it should be narrated by an object that speaks, 
right? It, it seems like the most obvious thing in the world. But once again, you know, it, it wasn't until I was quite far into the writing process that I even realized um, what was happening. So all of this to say that books have their own intelligence um, and they know far better than authors what they want to be. And so I think it's only appropriate to end um, by reading a, a section um, from the book, um, because the book is a very opinionated book <laughs> um, and, and has very strong opinions about the role of writers and authors, right? Authors are basically PR mouthpieces, <laughs> which is me right now. And, um, and, and writers are, are midwives with fingers, right? Because of course, books don't have fingers. They can't type, right? So um, anyway, here we go. So this is, uh, this is a little, I would call it almost a soliloquy or a lament. Um, the book is just uh, finished um, describing the scene where Annabelle and Kenji have met and made love for the first time. So I'll just read this. Has it ever occurred to you that books have feelings too? As you listen to this romantic tale of two ill-fated lovers, do you ever stop to wonder what it feels like for us? Because in truth, if skin marks the border where an I ends and a you begins, then in these moments of impassioned boundary crossing called love, we envy you. It's that simple. We envy you, your bodies. How can we not? Books have bodies too, but ours lack the organs needed to experience the world. The skin that covers our boards and encloses our words is different from yours. Our skin, whether made from paper or parchment or cloth, or these days some combination of plastic, glass, and metal, fulfills a similar function of marking our perimeters. But even the most haptic and capacitive of our skins cannot experience pleasure the way yours can. We cannot feel the ecstasy, the merging of self and other. Oh, sure. You can say that acts of literature are a kind of impassioned boundary crossing too, but literary acts are inherently disembodied, more notional and distributed. We rely on you to embody us and we exist because you can. So while we are cognizant of your fingers rifling through our pages and we can describe in words the bitter taste of coffee or a piquant sauce, or the salty semen spilled between our folios, we do not experience these sensations the way you do, on your tongue, against your skin, inside your human body. It's hard not to feel that we might be missing something. <laughs> As experts in the field of romance, we have evoked your acts of love in more ways and words than any single mind could possibly imagine. And yet we will never experience what it feels like to take our beloved's hand and press it to our lips. Oh, that we had lips. It's true that many of us have been loved and hugged, caressed, and even tenderly kissed. And all this we cherish. But in the moment when real lovemaking commences, we are the ones that get kicked aside and swept off the bed. Discarded, we lie face down, splayed upon the floor, our pages crumpled while mysteries unfold above us. Sometimes we think we would like to make love. Who wouldn't? We are madly in love with you, after all. As slaves to your obsessions, we know what it feels like to be impressed and bound. But at the same time, we understand that thoughts like these are just idle tropes. Fantasies we spin to while away the hours. Fantasies being something that we books excel at. The real stories, the ones that happen, belong to you. Let's 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 have a conversation. Now, um, thank you for reading the beginning of the book. I finished it about a week ago, and I had started it quite a while before that, yeah. and I'd forgotten the beginning. And there's so much in the very beginning of the book 
that reappears, the bat and the dumpster and the crows. And I just, you know, wow, it's like, that was right there. <laughs> I know, it was right there, right, in plain view. Did, did everybody hear this? Um, yeah, can, can you all hear in the back? No, okay, so that the, the Tigan was just saying that, um, you know, that he had read the beginning of the book quite a long time ago and he was thanking me for rereading, you know, for reading it now because he'd forgotten that and, and hadn't, under, hadn't realized that so much of what was in the beginning of the book reappears throughout the book, the dumpster, the crows, a lot of, a lot of different images, yeah. So did you know that when you started writing it, or how did that, you know, what's that process? Yeah, right. Did I know that when I started writing it? Um, well, no. Um, I don't know anything when I start writing, and basically is what happens. Um, I, I um, uh, you know, I think I knew that Kenji, I knew the location, right? Um, it, it's a location based um, on a place where I used to live, um, which happens to be in Vancouver, but it could be, you know, it, it's anywhere. Yeah, but it, it's kind of any, it, it's a, it, in the book, it's a kind of suspended anywhere place, kind of in the Pacific Northwest, but it's kind of somewhere in between Seattle, Vancouver, and maybe, you know, Portland, you know, somewhere in that swap. Um, and so when I, you know, when I began writing it, I, I had a sense of what was, I knew what was going to happen in that scene. Um, I could see it, I could visualize it. Um, but certain things I didn't know about. And, and for example, the crows that were covering Kenji's body at the beginning, um, that much later on, those crows repeat in a similar situation. And um, when, and so that's maybe 200 pages later, Right, and so when that happens, I think back to the beginning, and I go back to the beginning, and, and sort of work that in. So it's always back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, trying to um, you know fill in at the beginning what is mentioned later on, and creating those through lines um, because I think those through lines are really you know that's what um, they they kind of accrue. Right, they accrue a kind of energy, even if you don't know that the first time you read. Still, somewhere you you retain that, and so when you hit that image later on, um, you know it, it is significant in ways that it wouldn't be if it hadn't been prepared for. So, so much of the writing process is just doing that kind of backwards and forwards, um, and I always think of it as kind of combing images through the book. Right, so you go back to the beginning and you comb the images through. And, and so you're bringing all of these threads and stories through. And that's what makes it interesting, right? That's what makes it, it fun. Yes. Well, I was thinking when the ghost came back, I was really glad it turned out to, Um, you know, 
what is it about writing? And, and when did that start, right? And I mean, I, I think that I have always, ever since I started to read, I, I knew that I wanted to write. Um, that, that was never, you know, all of my favorite books um, when I was a child are about writers, you know, um, starting with like Charlotte's Web, which you think is about a pig and a spider, but it's not. It's actually about a writer. It's, it's Charlotte, the spider, is a writer. And she saves the pig's life with words, right? So, um, you know, and, and yeah, all of my, all of my favorite books, um, from, a, from childhood are, you know, are, were like that. And, um, and then it, so that was when I was very little, but then when I was, um, when I was in high school, I just had a really tough time when I was, I had a tough adolescence. Um, it, it really sucked. And, um, you know, and, and so the whole experience, Benny's experience being locked on the pediatric psych ward was something that, uh, you know, I knew I had lived through that myself. Um, and it was really um, during the, the, my teen years that it hit me that um, all of the novels that I love, and I think you could probably say this about all novels, right, um, are about suffering. <laughs> they all have suffering in them. Right. I mean, that's kind of usually it's suffering something, you know, something happens, something bad happens. And that's a precipitating incident that, you know, that kicks off a story. Right. Um, and tragedies behave one way and, you know, and, and comedies behave another way. But they all have this kernel of suffering. Um, and I think it was, you know, during those years, um, I was just reading an awful lot. And I was reading about, particularly, you know, I was reading, really, I was reading books like The Bell Jar, right? And, um, and so it, they comforted me. They comforted me because I realized, oh, wow, everybody suffers, right? It was, it was like my first noble truth moment. It was like, oh, right, you know, suffering is, exists and everybody, you know, everybody does it. Um, and, um, and it was really through the process of writing you know, that I, I think books kind of saved my life, writing saved my life. And this is, this is why I am, I, I seem to be writing a lot about adolescents who are, you know, who are writers and who are in some way saving their lives through some kind of written communication. That's what, you know, um, A Tale for the Time Being was, you know, now the, the young girl, now Yasutani, who is writing, you know, has this faith in words and is writing in a diary and, you know, just knows that she will write her diary, write her story and send it out into the world and somebody will be out there to pick it up. Right. Um, and so it's really that I, I kind of think of that as a kind of Scheherazade story where as long as she continues to write about her life, right, she's, she's going to be fine. Um, and, and then this, this one too, the book of form and emptiness, you know, is about a boy who is in, active conversation with a book, right? Um, and through that process, is learning a lot about his own voice as well. So this, this seems to be my theme, certainly for the last two books. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, back there. Thanks so much. Um, I'm so intrigued both in this latest book and in the between between but really Sure, sure. That's a great question. Um, so, did everybody hear that? This the the um, in both this book and the uh, the former, you know, the previous book um, until for, for the time being. There's a kind of relationship between what were the words you used? They were so great. Spectral. Yes, sexual and ghostly and insistent material. Insistently real and material, right. So spectral and ghostly occurrences on one hand and very, you know, um, insistently real and grounded, yeah, you know, parts of stories that are grounded in reality. And, and so what's the relationship between those? Well, you know, one of the books that I read when I was in um, high school was um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, 100 Years of Solitude. I know, right? And um, 
it, it, you know, I, I don't need to tell you that it's a magical, magical book. And it was the first time that I'd encountered anything quite like that, where on one hand it felt real, and on the other hand it was, it was spectral and otherworldly, ghostly, whatever, right? It was magical. And ever since then, um, which means for like 40 years, um, I wanted to try to do something like that. But I am not a very, I am a very reality-based person, right? Um, I, I come from a lineage of rationalists and scientists, and, um, and I just thought I would never be able to do it, right? I just, I didn't know how to do it. It was like there was, when I was writing a tale for the time being, I knew that I needed to cross over into that world, right? But I didn't know how to do it. And I was terrified. And, and I remember writing closer and closer and closer to the moment when this transition had to happen from one world to the, you know, from the reality to the spectral, right? And I remember it was, it felt like there was a wall there. And I was getting closer and closer and closer to the wall. And suddenly I was standing there and the wall was right in front of me. And I put my hand on the wall and pushed and the wall disappeared. Right. And then I realized, well, obviously you just write it. You know, there's nothing magical. You just write it. And then it, you know, it happens. Right. But I had the, the wall was in my mind. Right. The wall was totally in my mind. And it's funny now to think about how much I how, how that terrified me. And, and having once done that, having once kind of pushed through to the other side, it, it, it's no longer as much of a mystery to me. Um, the way that it relates to my Zen practice, um, it is, and it really does relate to my Zen practice. And, um, and I didn't understand this until I read Tigan's book. Um, and this is a little... Forgive me for going on about, but this is this was a realization that I had recently. Um, in it was, it, it was actually no, it was the introduction that you wrote to um, uh, A. H. Dogen, mystical realist, right? When you talked about Dogen's instructions for zazen, for sitting meditation, as being almost a kind. W- w- uh, it's complicated, but being a kind of performance art that when you, in, in the Buddhist meditation that we practice, let me back up. In most, in, in other forms of meditation, there's always this idea that if you meditate, right, based on your efforts, you will become enlightened. There's a causal connection there, right? A, a separation there. And, um, and what Dogen um, what Dogen, he reframes this, Dogen being the, the founder of, of the Soto Zen lineage that, that many of us practice in. Um, Dogen reframes this, and, um, and his, his way of talking about it is the reason, it, it, we don't sit Zazen in order to achieve something, right? We sit Zazen because we are already enlightened. Right. And that's why we're drawn to meditate. That's why, why we're drawn to, to, you know, to sit zazen. So it takes that, you know, it takes that, um, that causal connection there and, and kind of dismantles it, turns it around. And, um, and in that, in that, um, forward to, uh, Ehe Dogen mystical realist, realist, you, um, you talked about how Dogen's zazen is, could even be called a kind of performance art. Right. Um, because in that moment, when you're sitting Zazen, you become the Buddha. Right. You manifest the Buddha. Right. And this is a kind of magic. Right. This this suddenly, you know, I think it was the way that, you know, that you use the word performance art. It suddenly hit me like, oh, right. You know, this is the relationship. Um, and, and so it, it sort of dismantled it, it. It kind of took the wall right, that I've been feeling that existed between, you know, the, the, you know, the sort of quotidian realism, you know, materialism, and this other realm, it just kind of removed that for me. And, and it actually, and very much changed the way I sit zazen now. Um, Because I, you know, the, the two, the writing experience and the zazen experience are kind of um, feeding each other in a different kind of way. I just was able to sort of grasp it in a different kind of way. 
Um, so anyway, that's a little esoteric, but that that's kind of how the 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 yeah the the Zen experience kind of played into the writing experience and vice versa. The writing experience kind of plays into the Zen experience, right? I no longer kind of think of them as separate. Thank you, Pagan. <laughs> Good. Um, I think, should we do one more question? Does anybody? Uh, I'm going to go over here because I thought you were ready. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, as I mentioned before, we came um, You know, in, a, in an unconventional book that begins maybe with a sort of conventional domestic tragedy, one of the more unconventional characters is the Aleph. Set the Aleph. Um, yeah, the Aleph or the Aleph. Uh, Benny on sort of a, his quest to move into a different world. Yeah. Um, I'm just interested in when the Aleph came to you and did you come through full form? Did you know who she was going to be from the beginning or how did that develop? God, you know, it's such a good question. Um, it, so the Aleph is the is the um, performance artist that, um, or the uh, yeah, the performance artist that um, Benny meets in um, the library, and she does. She sends, you know, she she meets Benny, or she actually Benny meets her for the first time in the pediatric psych ward, um, and then meets her again in the library, and she's really the one who sends Benny on this this quest that he's on um, to understand what's real. Um, and so the question is, you know, where did, where did she come from? Um, she, she is an unconventional, she's something different. She's not a character we've seen. In yes, she's not a character that we've seen in other novels. Oh, actually, I just remembered where she came from. Um, <laughs> she came from another novel. <laughs> You know what? She is. She and Slavosh, the the bottle man, the or the the you know the Slovenian poet philosopher, are refugees from an early draft of a tale for the time being. Whoa! <laughs> um, because an early draft of the tale for the time being was not set on um, at you know an island in British Columbia with the characters of Ruth and Oliver. That was not a part of the original concept at all. Um, the original concept was that um, the person who picked, who finds Nao's diary and starts to read it hangs out in the library and has friends in the library. And those were um, his friends. And um, the thing is, is that, you know, some characters just... They don't, they're like the little wave with the white hat. They're like, you know, just because you decided not to write the novel this way doesn't mean that, you know, we have to disappear too. Like those characters really wanted to stick around. And, um, and so they resurfaced um, in this book. Now, her name, I think, was not the Alice at that point. I can't, I actually can't remember this. Um, but I knew that there was a, there was a strong um, Borges you know, um, I, I knew that there were certain ghosts that were going to be in this book, um, the, the Book of Form and Emptiness, and one of them is uh, Jorge Luis Borges, and the other one is Walter Benjamin, right? And, um, and, and there's this idea in the book that all books talk to each other, right? They kind of form a rhizomatic, you know, network underground, and they're all in conversation with each other all the time. And so this book's friends are... Borges and Walter Benjamin. And so I think the name of um, the Aleph came from, came from that, you know, came from the Borges story called the Aleph, right? Um, and it's a fantastic story. It's a wonderful short story. So that it, it, you know, again, a lots of different pieces coming from different directions. <laughs> it's funny, I could have forgotten that she was, she was a part of that early, early book. Anyway, um, I think we're out of time, and uh, thank you all so much for coming and for, for being here, and I really appreciate it. It's nice to, it's nice to be here.